Amen. Let's take our Bibles out and turn to Isaiah chapter 43, starting in verse 22. Isaiah 43, 22, and we'll be going through um, a good portion of Scripture today, and um, all the way through chapter 44, verse 23. <clears throat> so uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in the seat backs in front of you, and underneath the seats, and we would love you to take one of those if you do not have a Bible that is uh, something that you can use every single day. We'd love for you to have one of ours, which is now yours. And you can also give that Bible to someone else if you are like, hey, I really know someone that needs a Bible. So we would love for you to do that. I love old songs and new songs. The first song we sang today was a song that uh, just was uh, written about a month ago, and uh, on that day when we were singing that, and then uh, right after that, we sang a song that's been around for a while, How Great Thou Art. Uh, I love new songs. I love old songs. I, I love the words to the songs to worship God, and that to me is, is key, and on a day like today when we're getting ready to celebrate Thanksgiving in our nation, a unique uh, day for uh, the United States, uh, a day that we should be worshiping and praising God for what he has done and what he continues to do for us. And we should do that every single day. Amen? Give thanks. Well, there's an old song that uh, I was reminded of this week when I was getting ready for this message and the words are so, so great. It says, All glory and praise to the Lamb that was slain, who hath borne all our sins and has cleansed every stain. All glory and praise to the God of all grace, who has brought us and sought us and guided our ways. Revive us again. Fill each heart with thy love. May each soul be rekindled with fire from above. Last week, if you were with us, Isaiah had shown us the way to reformation as God realigns us with his purpose. Now the prophet shows us the way to revival. Revive us again is what he's saying. God revives, revives us with his life. And the point of all of what we're looking at here over the last few weeks is that we will become living proof that God outperforms any other idols. That God really is as good as he says he is. Let's dive right in into verse 22 of chapter 43. Yet you have not called on me, O Jacob, but you have become weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought to me the sheep of your burnt offerings, nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings, nor wearied you with incense. You have brought me not sweet cane with money, 
nor have you filled me with the fat of your sacrifices. Rather, you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue our case together. State your case that you may be proved right. Your first forefathers sinned and your spokesmen have transgressed against me. So I will pollute the princesses of the sanctuary and I will consign Jacob to the ban and Israel to revilement. And you may be going, I have no clue what that's about. Well, God is saying something very specific here. He's not saying that his people were not worshiping. He's saying that their worship really wasn't about him. He was saying that the very sacrifices that they were bringing, far from removing sin, really, were themselves sins and iniquities. Because God searches the inner reality of our worship, of their worship. What did he find there? We see that word weary, weariness. And I just want everyone to know, you may be feeling weary this morning, and that's a different type of weariness. That's sleepiness. Okay, get rid of that. The weariness here is a misunderstanding and a miscalculation of who God is. And if, there, if you are weary of worship, there's a problem. And God says, whoa, there's a big problem. You see, God did tell the Israelites how to worship him. I don't know if you've ever read the book of Leviticus, but it's pretty interesting. It's God's manual for worship with elaborate instructions on how to do it. They could follow the script they could follow the script. In fact, on special occasions, the worship was just incredible. It was lavish. One time they sacrificed 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep. You can find that in 2 Chronicles 7. And that wasn't wrong. But if you worship God with all of this extravagance on the outside, and it really is just a joyless duty, that's not God's will. That is not what he says we're supposed to be. And that's why he says here in verse 24, if you look at that again, you, you have not filled me. You have not satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. So if God wasn't satisfied with the fat of 142,000 sacrifices, what could that mean? Well, what he wants is for worship to unburden sinners. That's what the sacrificial system was for. God never meant it to be wearing in, in, you know, imposing some sort of duty on them that they weren't joyful about. He says in verse 23 there, I've not, I've not burdened you. I, I haven't burdened you. 
But throughout Israel's history, they treated worship as a mechanism for controlling God, putting God in their debt. And naturally enough, it became wearisome. You know, they're just kind of walking through the motions. I'm going to pause for a moment and say, I had fun worshiping with you over the last five songs this morning. I'm back there, and generally all I hear is Siva. God bless him. His monitor's so loud. But I will tell you, I, I heard you guys this morning. I, I heard you. You were, you were shouting out, probably because of Siva shouting back at you. No, that's not it at all. You were shouting out in praise, and it's fun to watch the faces. It's, it's, it's a blessing to watch people worship in the right way. And that's, and that's what God's getting at here. He's like, don't, don't treat this as a mechanism of controlling me. Worship me because of what I've done for you. You know, Isaiah is saying God doesn't, God doesn't enjoy it when you worship in a way that is wearisome. I mean, you really get the sense here that God goes, oh, be quiet, please. La, 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 la. What he's really saying is, you know what? Those 142,000 sacrifices... Smile about that. Smile. Smile about that. God wants his worship to set hearts free. The sacrificial system back in the Old Testament was a prefigurement of the cross of Christ. So it should have been freeing. It should have been, this is amazing what God is doing in our midst and what he will continue to do as he redeems our people, his people. As Mark 10 says, the son of man came not to serve, be, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This was the whole prefigurement of this system. And we were learning how to worship back then and we worship now. But we violate worship when we turn a means of grace into a means of apathy. When we enter into true worship, when our hearts are revived through the finished work of Christ on the cross, that should be amazing. As the Bible says, we cast all our cares on Him. That's what He wants us to do. That's the kind of worship that pleases God. He is our burden bearer. And you would think that a God that has given so much grace would be irresistible. But here's the problem, and I think everyone in the room knows that in our sinful, yucky selves, we long to save ourselves. We want, with a compulsive craving, really, to deserve the good we get. That's why we say things like, well, I'm better than that person. I deserve better because I'm better. And we drag that way of thinking into our relationship with God. We give to God in order to get. And our natural drift 
is to worship God, not to unburden ourselves, but to obligate Him. That's what Isaiah is getting at. And that denies the very being of God. If you re-look at verses 25 through 28, God locates His very identity in blotting out our sins and remembering them no more. He's, he's like, that's, that's who I am. That's what I do. And Satan comes along, the accuser, right? Satan comes along, kind of comes before God and says, look at that Christian down there. Why do you still love him? Don't you remember what he did to you last week? Again on Tuesday, then again yesterday. And God says, and let me, this is obviously me telling a story, so let me paraphrase it this way. God says, I, I don't remember. Hey, Gabriel, where does that believer stand with us? Check the database. Check that book. Gabriel logs in. Only info that it comes up on the screen is the righteousness of Christ. Credited to that sinner. Because that's how God honors himself. What does he say? I blot out your transgressions. For your sports lovers, I splice out the bad plays of the game film for my own sake. And God, God says back to Satan, I, I'm, I'm not saying your facts are wrong, but you're not telling the whole story. You're not telling the whole story about that Christian. What matters most to me for my own sake is not that person's record, but Christ's record for him or her. And isn't that grace? That's God. And to think every time we come before him what he has done for us, that brings revival. You know, I thought for a moment, and it was a very brief moment, and it would have been very mean to everyone today. But for a brief moment, I thought, hey, let's have Daniel fake that he had a heart attack. <laughs> and I was going to run and get the AED unit in the back, break it out, and shock the living daylights out of him. <laughs> and then I realized I probably would not be reviving him, I'd be killing him be the opposite of what I wanted to do. And if I actually revived him, people would think that something actually cool happened when it was all a joke. But that revival, that shock back to life, it should be shocking to us every time we realize what Christ has done for us. Right? That's shocking. but something inside us doesn't want grace. We want to justify ourselves at least a little bit. And that's why, with great irony, God invites us to come up with something in ourselves that deserves his mercy. That's why he says in verse 26, put me in remembrance, let us argue our case together. State your cause that you may be proved right. When we blame God for the way he treats us, where does that hostility come from? 
You hear people blame God all the time, right? And you may be guilty of that yourself. Well, it comes from our own demanding self-righteousness that says we deserve better. And God says, okay, make your case that you deserve better. But the fact is, we have nothing to be proud of. Right down to our roots, we're rotted in sin, right? My daughter, oldest daughter, was talking to a lady at a gift store in Hawaii yesterday, or the day before. It was yesterday. And um, she started talking about God to her and, you know, what do you believe about God or, you know, Jesus and would you come to my church and love to, oh, I don't go to church and, well, what do you believe about God? Well, I, I, I you know, I believe that, uh, that I'm God and that you're God. And uh, that's common. And then I love Kaylee says, does God sin? Do you sin? Do you sin? Yes. But if you're God, why do you sin? And she's like, I, I, I don't want to play this game anymore. And she quit. But that's, that's, that's God putting us to the test. It's, it's this understanding, okay, make your case. You, you don't deserve grace, forgiveness. What we do deserve is verse 28. I will deliver Jacob to, as another translation says, to utter destruction. Do you really want justice from God without grace? No. I don't. I, I don't want that. Sign me up for grace. And, and sign me up for mercy. And what we see here is turning the grace of worship into the drudgery of self-punishment turns Israel into Canaan. But in the mercy of God, that's not the end of the passage. It's only the beginning. It's not where God leaves us. It's where he starts with us because he's reminding us of the problem. And then he tells us the remedy is God's spiritual refreshment. Let's read on, starting in verse 1 of chapter 44. But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord, who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And they will spring up among the grass like poplars by the stream of water. This one will say, I am the Lord's. And this one will call on the name of Jacob. And another one will write on his hand, belonging to the Lord, and will name Israel's name with honor. You need to look here at how God goes out of his way to reassure us. We are his servants, right? It says that. We, he chose us. He made us. He formed us. He will help us. It's all of his grace. God doesn't want us to be insecure in him. His remedy for our violations of his grace is what? 
more grace. He wants us to know that. Our sins do not discredit us and do not free God of an obligation to us. We can demand nothing of him, but that doesn't mean God quits on us. What does he do? He says, I will pour. I will pour. I will pour water on the thirsty land, streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offering, my blessing on your descendants. It's the way of God to come down to us, even us, with his presence so that we burst into life. He is promising to pour himself out with such generosity that we become, as one author puts it, a people saturated with God. I love that picture. Who are you, Scott? I am a Christian. I am a believer. I am a person saturated with the grace of God. So the question then becomes... Are you sitting here today and are you thirsty and dry? Are you thirsty and dry? God has a special tenderness for that. Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Right? John 7, verse 37 What he has for you as a believer is full satisfaction, but it only comes from him. God is keeping his promise for his own glory. We are privileged now to live during the era within God's great plan for history when the Holy Spirit is being poured out among us. 2,000 years ago on the day of Pentecost, God unleashed the mighty river of the Holy Spirit upon a guilty world. And he continues to pour out his spirit today in wave after wave of reviving grace. And every once in a while, that kind of, you have an ebb and flow of that in your life. And you feel that. You feel that dryness sometimes, but you know what's going to come that grace. Spirit, say, no, 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 Scott. Remember who you belong to. Remember who bought you. Remember who called you. What's going on here? It's talking about worship, dead worship, alive worship, God's not promising just to make church services more fun. But understand what God is saying. He's saying, I renew things. I reform, I renew. New heavens, new earth. How? Holy Spirit, new life, new growth, new, newness surges forward towards his appointed goal. The remedy God brings is nothing less than himself. All of what we're going through is pointing to Jesus returning. The power of the ages to come. Under the influence of the Spirit, instead of people sitting on the fence, what, tend, what should happen and what will happen as we see here 
I, I love this little section in verse, uh, verse 5. This one will say, I am the Lord's, and that one will call on the name of Jacob, and another one will write on his hand, belonging to the Lord. You see, under the influence of the Spirit, instead of people sitting on the fence, they're going to line up to identify with Jesus. It's almost like you could picture a bidding war happening. To, to uh, No, 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 no. This is how much I'm going to worship. No, no, no. I'm going to worship this much. Another author put it this way, notorious sinners when hit with the Holy Spirit become notorious believers. Notorious sinners become notorious believers. Who's the perfect picture of that in the New Testament? It's Paul. Notorious sinner becomes a notorious believer. Believers running away from him at every moment that you see in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 8 and chapter 9, before he becomes a believer. They're running away because he's a notorious sinner. And then everything changes. He's brought into the light. He's redeemed. He's called by name, by Christ. And then he becomes a notorious believer and all of Rome is after him. Isn't that interesting? That's what God does as the magnitude of his grace breaks uh, upon us with a reviving power. Isaiah 44, 1 through 5 God's way of saying, really, here's the future of the world. I will create new realities by the sheer force of my grace. Your part is not to deny your thirst, but to let me quench it. And the reason is just the undivided reality of God that we see in verses 6 through 20. Let me read it for you. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God beside me. Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation. And let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witness. Is there any God beside me or is there any other rock? I know of none. The folly then of idolatry that we see in verse 9 is capped in there. Those who fashion a graven image are all of them futile. And all of them are futile and their precious things are of no benefit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or know, so they will be put to shame. Who has fashioned a god or cast an idol to no profit? 
Behold, all his companions will be put to shame, for the craftsmen themselves are mere men. Let them all assemble themselves. Let them stand up. Let them tremble. Let them together be put to shame. The man shapes iron into a cutting tool and does his work over the coals, fashioning it with hammers and working it with his strong arm. He also gets hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and becomes weary. Another shapes wood. He extends a measuring line. He outlines it with red chalk. He works with planes and outlines it with a compass and makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of a man so that it may sit in a house. Surely he cuts cedars for himself and takes a cypress or an oak and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir and the rain makes it grow. Then it becomes something for a man to burn, so he takes one of them and warms himself. He also makes fire to bake bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes it a graven image and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the other half he eats a meal as he roasts a roast and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I'm warm, I have seen the fire. But the rest of it he makes into a god, his graven image. He falls down before it and worships. He also prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They do not know, nor do they understand, for he has smeared over their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot comprehend. No one recalls, nor is there knowledge or understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire and also baked bread over its coals. I roast meat and eat it. Then I make the rest of it into an abomination. I fall down before a block of wood. He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver himself nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? This is a really interesting section of Scripture. The reason God gives himself to us so much is to prove that he is God, right? And because his goodness is of a spreading nature, he then denies all other gods not to diminish our joy, but to intensify our joy as he is our redeemer. If we can get past all of the junk that we carry in our lives and accept him as our all-sufficient God. We are not robbed. We are enriched. He gets the glory. We taste the glory. Jesus describes the ultimate human experience this way. Enter into the joy of your master. Matthew 25. The exclusive reality of God is an offense to a pluralistic culture today you walk around and you say there's one god only one way to god and that's through jesus christ everyone will go (laughs) but you need to understand that's always been a stumbling block scripture says that why because in our sinful nature we want free range It's stubborn insistence to be free to do what we want to do. Then you have the stubborn insistence of the prophets that there's only one Savior. And that just doesn't go away. They're very stubborn about it all through Scripture. And that's because heat does not go away. 
in every single generation, God pours out the reality of himself upon idolaters who get thirsty enough to give him ear to hear. Our role then is to be a fearless witness, as it says there, living proof that God alone is enough to satisfy thirsty people. And that is the meaning of our lives. That is the church's mission in the world. Are you not my witness? I mean, if I had time and if I wanted to drill this down really, really specifically, we'd we'd start over here and we would tell every person and say every person's name one by one and say, are you his witness? And you're like, oh. And man, I hope the answer is yes. You guys ever heard of a philosopher by the name of Nietzsche? Terrible person. He one time was asked why he rejected Christianity. And amongst a lot of different things he said, one thing that's interesting, remember it says that we are his witnesses. One of the things he said is, I never saw the members of my father's church enjoying themselves. And what, really what that means is they, I mean, his eyes, as we see in this section of scripture, his eyes were smeared closed and clouded and, and all of that. But the truth is, who should be the most joyful people on the planet? The redeemed. The redeemed of the Lord say so. The redeemed. That's the meaning of our lives. The flip side in verses 9 through 20 there is Isaiah really mocks just how weird it is to believe in idols. And, and I, I love that section of scripture because you, you have to really dive down into it. And, and it's so alive to what people do today. You know, it, it's like, hold it. You, you cut down a tree, there's nothing wrong with that. God gave us trees to use and steward, right? And we build our homes out of that, we do all of that. The man warms himself with a fire from the wood, no problem with that. He, break, he bakes the bread over the fire, hey, pretty good idea. Then he stands up the leftover piece of wood and asks it to save him. And that's the absurdity that Isaiah is painting that picture there. It's absurd to try to derive an ultimate experience from a less than ultimate resource. And that's false worship. Think about it. If, if there's only one God and if we are not experiencing his reviving fullness, there's a reason. The reason is idols are clogging the inflow of his refreshment. We're setting up idols in our house that block us from worshiping God. And God is forcing the reality then of the idols in our lives. The Jewish people were sent into exile into Babylon. What happened then 
He's like, okay, if you don't want to worship me, I will send you to a place and you will find out what it really looks like to see people worship something completely different. As they entered Babylon through the Ishtar Gate and walked into the great processional way, every step they took would have been on slabs of imported limestone, each one three and a half feet square, and along the edge of each slab was inscribed to the honor of Marduk, the, the patron god of the city. Everywhere they stepped in captivity would have said to the honor, honor of Marduk, to the honor of Marduk. In fact, the name Babylon, Babylon means gate of gods. Babylon was the way to heaven on earth. It was the meaning of their culture. It's the meaning of our culture. And the message for us today, as it was for them, hey, everyone, be careful. Because God, for so many of you, God is not your life. He may have a place in it. You may kind of put him along. Well, I'm a God. You're a God. He may be a God. He may have started something. But that's not, it's not truth. It's not who God is. It's relying on yourself. It's relying on the leftovers of what that piece of wood in the stove next to the stove. I, I, I love that picture. You cook with it, you build with it, and then you worship it. It's absurd to try to worship once again something that's less than ultimate. A year and a half ago, I finished my doctorate degree I can truly say God gave that to me. <laughs> you get it. It's a good thing. I, I, I did that in order to, to learn more and to hopefully better communicate God's word to people. That, that's, that's why I, I, I got that. I thank him for it. But if I rely on that piece of paper to save me emotionally from some sort of deep insignificance that maybe I have in life, if I derive my sense of myself from a thing, that becomes an idol. God is my salvation. God is my salvation, and we must understand that the life that is truly life in every respect comes from beyond anything created. God is our salvation. He is able to make himself real to us, more real than his creation. Bow down before him and enter into true worship. And this is how, as we see the outcome of all of this in the final three verses that we'll look at this morning. Starting in verse 21. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. 
I have formed you, you are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Shout for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout joyfully, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into a shout of joy, you mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and in Israel he shows forth his glory. I want you to picture right now, if you can, the magnitude of the gospel. We're entering into the Christmas season where we tell the story of Christ's birth. And it was a glorious day, angels singing, scaring the living daylights out of the shepherds, letting them know of this magnificent culmination of everything that had gone on before, zeroing in to Christ coming and what was going to then happen within the next 33 years. Would you have loved to have been there that evening? That would be so cool. It would have been so great. But the truth is, as we're on this side of that story, and we have the full, complete story of what has happened, how God has worked over the last 2,000 years, we have the future story that is still out in front of us. And when I look at the total, the totality of Scripture, I look at the magnitude of the gospel, what God has promised goes so far beyond what we can ask or think or imagine. Our part right now is to remember that God alone is the Redeemer. Our part is to return to him and shout and praise. Let go of your idols. Launch out into God alone. The life that you most deeply long for comes only from God in Jesus Christ through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. He pours it out freely into the empty hands of faith. And that's the way to revival. You've got to lose yourself in order to gain him. And he's worth it. He gives himself to sinners with overflowing salvation. The man, the woman who has God for his or her treasure has all things in one. There are a lot of ordinary treasures, right? And many people will hold on to those treasures and deny him. 
what we need to do is let those treasures go. Those man-made, impartially completed, non-ultimate sourced treasures. And you know what? You will, you will sense some loss there. But to have the source of all things in one, in your life, all satisfaction is now wrapped into that. There have been times when you read a, 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 a portion of you know, some of the martyrs in, in the Puritan time frame and you know, people that just were tortured in incredibly awful ways. And you hear, you know, some points, you just hear, you know, the last things they were doing were singing and praising to God. How, how were they able to do that? Because they had let go of all the earthly treasures and they had the one who was and is and will be in their lives. And they were worshiping him because they knew in a few minutes they were going to be with him. And that changes perspective greatly. See, whatever a person may lose, that person has actually lost nothing. For now, that person has it all in Christ. When they walk in belief in him. And you have it purely, and you have it legitimately, forever. That guarantee of salvation. I will never let you go out of my hand. I will never, ever, ever, ever let you go out of my hand. That is why someone going through the depths of awfulness on earth can look to heaven and worship. But oddly enough, the person that maybe has everything that the world says is a treasure may be the most miserable person on the planet. And I don't know where you are all today. Do you need revival? Do you need refreshment in him? Do you need to let go of the earthly treasures and allow the one true treasure to guide and direct your life and fill you with his spirit? Then come to Christ. Come to Christ. And for those of you who are saved, rejoice. There's a reason Paul says rejoice. And I say it again, rejoice. You can just kind of picture him, you know, that paper, that fabric, whatever they used for those words was expensive, and he repeated it. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. That was an expensive statement because we're continually to be rejoicing over 
and over and over again. And on Thursday, that's just another day where I rejoice even more. Even more again. The next Lord's Day, I'm, I'm here and I'm dragging 400 of my friends to, to hear more about why I rejoice and rejoice again. Hey, Scott, does it ever get old? No, it doesn't because I know, I know who I belong to. I know what he's actually done for me. And I know that every tree of the field shouts for joy. The mountains. Because the Lord has done it. I didn't save myself. The Lord saved me. And because I know that's true. I'm his forever. You're his forever. So give thanks and rejoice. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together as we close.